Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to everybody in the room here. Welcome to all those joining us online. I just want to say to everyone online who's been down in the deep south for so many months, we want to report that spring has arrived here in Indiana. So book your tickets, head back north. Isn't it a great day to be in Indiana today? Hoosiers? Yes. Yes. So spring has come, and it's great to have everyone here and joining, continue to be greeted by those coming in saying, hey, just finished my last round of vaccinations, first worship service back. So great to have those of you who are stepping back into community on these Sunday mornings together as we work our way into the Easter season and what I think it'll be a really meaningful stretch for church ministry and outreach. If you've got a Bible near you, open it up to Exodus 32. Um, You can scan the little QR codes. Those of you in the room here, you can scan the little code there on the chair in front of you. Those at the tables in the back, the QR codes uh, on the back of the little centerpiece there. That's how you get the message notes. Those of you online, your online host can direct you. It would be super helpful in light of the message today if you kind of have that close by. As we're working through this series um, that we've entitled The With God Life, and we started in, the, in January, and I look today, we're on page 75 of the Bible. Isn't that awesome? We've only got like a thousand or so pages left, but we said we're going to take this journey through the larger narrative of the storyline of Scripture. We've got a couple hundred of us reading through uh, the one-year Bible together, and uh, we've been looking at this reality that God is the great subject of the verb of human history, that the starting point to understand our lives The centering reality is God, Uh, like in the beginning God, and from that we begin to discern lots of things. Like we're not the center of the story He is, and that this story that we're living in, we find ourselves waking up in each day is the grand, epic, eternal story of God, not the small, brief story of us. And so we've been looking at this as God begins in Genesis by calling Abraham and forming a nation called Israel. And through the Lenten season, we're in with the life of Moses, and we've seen how this nation, this group called the Israelites, has been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And and God's got a plan, and He's got a purpose, and He's extracting them out of the things that have been oppressing them. And He's leading them to the promised land about 400 miles north. And the part of the storyline we're in now is this place where Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And he's been there longer than the people wanted him to be. Um, kind of extended stay on the mountaintop, meeting with God, and the people grow impatient, and generally out of our hearts, nothing good happens when we get impatient, and we want to try to move things along in God's agenda, and this is the story that we're in today uh, that I've entitled, like, When the Good Becomes Ultimate, or I put on the top of your note sheet uh, one sentence from Tim Keller here that kind of summarizes Exodus 32. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. The language for a counterfeit God in the Bible is called an idol. And so we're getting a storyline today of the work of God um, kind of uprooting those places of idolatry in our hearts. And when you think about what an idol is, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It's those places where you say deep down in your heart of hearts, I have to have this. If I, if I don't, my life won't have meaning. I, it'll, it'll be the way I find value and significance. It's a, it's a must-have. And sometimes they start out as very good things, like 
A career is a great thing to have. A family is a wonderful thing to have. Marriage and children, those are all good things. And financial security, these are good things. Your morality and your virtue, uh, your brains and your body, like these are all good things. But when you press the good things to the ultimate things, God attaches a label to that called idolatry. And He loves us enough in His mercy and grace to come to those places in our hearts and say, I've got something more different from you, for you, for these days. So Exodus 32, here's where we pick up the story. Again, Moses, top of the mountain, he's been there for 40 days. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Now, who's Aaron? Aaron's Moses' older brother, remember? It was about 83-year-old Aaron, 80-year-old Moses. That's kind of the dynamic duo for God's leadership in the kingdom right now. And so Aaron's like the priest role, older brother, so they would naturally go to Aaron for these kinds of conversations, and they say, come, make us notice God's little G who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And so you can kind of hear the disdain coming out of their voices, like, we don't know what's happened to Moses, although the pillar of cloud, like the cloud is descending on the mountain. It's obvious God is meeting with him. And we've learned from Exodus 19 onward that God is meeting with Moses to give him some kind of directives. He's given him what the Old Testament calls the law. He's given the moral law. He's given him the civil law. He's given him what's known as the Ten Commandments. And then he's giving them guidelines about how this nation is to function in relationship with each other and in relationship with God. That's why the second half of Exodus is filled with tons of details, and you go through and you go, why all the details? God's trying to teach and form and shape a people to know how to relate to each other. Remember, they're a nation that was enslaved for 400 years. They don't know how to handle the kinds of things the way God wants them handled. So Moses is up getting all these instructions. It's taking a while. There's a lot to write down. God's got a lot of things he'd like to say to his people. Moses is just doing what God wants him to do. The people grow impatient, go to Aaron and say, We're t- let's get this thing moving. Let's get it, get it going. And they basically want to form and fashion God's in their own eyes, which is still the propensity in our own hearts, right? We try to make God in our own image. We want to take things into our own hands. We want to birth things in our own strength. It's this picture of what this chapter is entitled, the golden calf. Verse 2, Aaron answers them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, in your Bibles, I want you to make note where Aaron, because this is going to be important, we're going to come back to it. Notice that he cast this shape, he cast it, he shaped it, and he fashioned it. Okay, don't forget that. Because he's going to have a little different narrative to offer Moses when Moses comes down to have a conversation about it. Okay, but just on the front end, notice what he did. And then he says, here are your gods. Now, it's a little bit confusing. Like, how could they be confused? Like, what? Golden calf, when parting of the Red Sea. Remember, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, and the Egyptian army being wiped out. Remember that whole scene we walked through a couple of weeks ago? Well, one Old Testament scholar really helped me with this section. I put this quote in your notes. Dr. Peter N. says it this way. Follow here. 
The choice of a calf is not arbitrary. It was a common idol image in the ancient Near East. Specifically, it was thought, hear this, that calves or bulls functioned as pedestals for the gods seated or standing over them. In this sense, the calf is analogous to the ark. You see this? So they're kind of trying to try to shape an ark in their own eyes is what's going on here. It's unlikely that the calf itself is being declared God by the Israelites as if they actually think that it had brought them out of Egypt. Rather, like the ark, it is the place above which God is enthroned, thus ensuring His presence with them. The calf is thus a pagan representation of the true God. So you see that? They're impatient with Moses and the pillar of cloud descending on the mountain. Like, whatever's going on up there is taking too long. We're going to fashion our own ark. We're going to make a golden calf, and we're going to mediate God's presence because we want God to go with us. We're ready to get moving to the promised land. Do you see this? And this is the, the challenge. This is kind of what's coming out of their hearts. And this is obviously not what God is looking for. Remember, it isn't just about getting the people to the promised land. It's about who they'll be when they get there. So the journey we've been on in Exodus so far is about God at work in ways of shaping and forming their character and deepening their roots of trust and strengthening their faith. So when they get to the promised land, they represent Him well. That's a good window into our journeys, right? When God uproots our lives and and moves us to places or pulls the rug out from under circumstances and we end up in situations we didn't imagine and we're on this journey, it's a winding road and God isn't just getting our lives from point A to B, He is doing that, but it's who we're becoming on the journey from point A to B. That's the bigger narrative because it's about representing His heart and His character well. Verse 5, let's see what happens now. So Aaron is caving into the pressure. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. See, notice they think they're mediating the Lord's presence here with this calf. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, you would think 83-year-old Aaron as the priest, you know, would expect a little more kind of holding the fort of righteousness here, right? You'd expect him to kind of like, hey, this is not how God would want us to behave. If you remember earlier in Exodus, he made it really clear that they shouldn't be forming and shaping images. He actually told them, especially in images of gold, he actually gave them that, knowing the propensity would be to do something like this. Like, Aaron, you know what God really is after. You're old enough. You've gone around the block enough. You've been walking with him. Like, hey, don't cave to the pressure of the people. It's another great indication, right? All through the narrative of the Bible, it seems to be a thread that the majority isn't always the base of wisdom. Like the majority, the voice of majority, like the crowds clamor, the group wants, they, they beckon for, like what the majority is often begging for isn't always the place of wisdom. Like Aaron, you got to hold the fort. You know what God wants. You know his character, his heart, his revealed. You got to stand in the gap here. You got to call the people to obedience, to righteousness, to holiness. Don't let them bow down and go down this road. See, Aaron, like it's a great picture, like Your sin never just affects you. It always affects the people around you. We know this, right, in our lives. Like, no matter what, as a parent, when you're falling on your face in sin as a parent, it never just affects you. It always affects the household around you. 
as a, as a teammate, it affects your team around you, right? In the ministry, in a church context, a sin, like, sin always affects those in closest relationship around you. It never is just affecting you. Like Aaron, right now, the sin of this spiritual leader is going to have ripple effects that eventually thousands of people are going to lose their lives, but it didn't have to be that way. If he could have just stepped forward and held the fort of righteousness, called the people to holiness, but he caved. He caved under the pressure of trying to please and appease the majority voice of the people. So Moses makes his way down the mountain. So you can picture that. God tells Moses up on the mountain, because he's fully aware of, hey, Moses, you need, we need to get this wrapped up because there's a big old mess going on down the bottom of the mountain. And basically, God's ready to wipe everyone out. And Moses begs him, like, hey, just give me a chance. You know, don't wipe them out. These are your people. Like, we're on this journey. We're, we're going to make it. And so there's this dialogue that's great between Moses and God. And then Moses heads down the mountain to see for himself what's really uh, going on here. And uh, he sees them, he sees the golden calf, he immediately responds by grinding it up and burning it. So if you want to know, like, what's God's vision for what he's going to do for those places of idolatry in your heart, he loves us in his grace and mercy to come after him, to tear him down and grind him up. That's what he wants to do with our idols. And so Moses tears this golden calf down, he grinds it up, and he gets the people together, and he's, he goes immediately to Aaron, of course, the spiritual leader, like the guy who's supposed to be holding the fort. Verse 21, Moses says to Aaron, what do these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? See, Moses understands who's supposed to be holding, right, the fort on righteousness and holiness. Like, he knows that people's propensity is going to be to maybe want to go back to Egypt, that whole dialogue, that they're going to be a pull. But, but Aaron, you know better than this. Hold the fort here. So he goes right to Aaron. Look at Aaron's response. I love this. Verse 22, don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, notice this quote, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Oh, wait a minute. What did verse 4 say? What did I say to make sure note of in verse 4? Did it really just kind of pop out of the fire like that? Aaron, didn't you have some shaping tools there? Didn't you do some crafting? Weren't you a part of fashioning? Those were the verbs that were used. But his explanation, which is the human condition, right? Don't we all have a lot of little out came this calf in us? Don't we? I, I do. I, I have a lot of out came this calf. Like, you know, why, why do we continue in those places of toxic relationships? Why do we keep repeating those patterns of behavior? I don't know. Out, out came this calf. Why do we keep going in these spending patterns and knowing we don't have the money, but we just keep spending in places we know we shouldn't do it? Well, I don't know. Out came this calf. Why do we keep, and we, we have this ability to kind of edit our history, which we see the Israelites do often, where we kind of filter through and we blame shift right here. I mean, God's just looking for somebody to take responsibility. Moses goes for Aaron to take some responsibility. Aaron turns, points a finger at the people. This is a Genesis 3 phenomenon, right? When they fall into sin in Genesis 3, we inherit in our fallenness this out, out came the calf propensity. We just... We try to shift responsibility. We want to point the finger. 
When they fall in the Garden of Eden and God goes to Adam, and Adam, what's the situation? He throws Eve under the bus. And he goes to Eve. Eve, what's the situation? Eve throws Satan under the bus. No one wants to take responsibility for their fallenness. Like Aaron, the real issue at hand is you caved to the pressure of the people's wishes. You didn't uphold what God wanted upheld. And then out came this calf. Like you didn't, you, you kept running from God and you keep running from each other. And you say, how, how does that happen? I don't know. Just out came this calf. It's kind of the propensity of the human heart. We want to blame shift. We want to shift responsibility. We want to point the finger. And we edit our history to the point where we think these things just magically jump out of the fire. So now you can picture, remember, let's not lose sight of the big story and the narrative here. What's God got in God's got this group of people, and He's moving them to the promised land, and they're going to represent His name. Their role is to help the surrounding nations see who Yahweh is. What a great God Yahweh is, to help the other nations come and worship Him. So God's got some forming and shaping to do in their hearts. So you think God's like looking at this going, man, I've got a lot of work to do before we get to the promised land. You see this? So He's going to work with this part of the journey now, and, and it looks like He's responding in like, you could say, well, why is he, seems overreactive. He kills 3,000 of them right in a whew, quick swath. 3,000 of them die, and then he issues a plague, thousands more die. And I started to think about, can you imagine the meditations that Moses and Aaron offered in all those memorial services? Can you picture that? Because again, they didn't have embalming back then, so there'd been mass graves, there'd been mass funerals, but whole family units, perhaps whole neighborhoods together, and they would be giving these memorial service meditations reflecting on the, do you think there might have been some reflection in those funerals about holiness, about not making a God in our own image, about the Ten Commandments? Somewhere Moses probably said, guys, let's not do this again. Like, come on now. We got to grow, learn, mature from this. Like we've got thousands of people who've lost their lives. And, and at surface value, you look at it and say, why'd God respond with such swiftness there? It has to do with all that's on the line, right? He's, got, he's recognizing what he's got to build in him, but he's primarily caring about what's happening in them. Like God's not diminished any by the golden calf. It's not an issue of God being diminished. It's an issue of the people being diminished when they're doing this. Because the picture the Bible says is whatever we set up as an idol in our heart, whatever occupies the place of ultimate value in our hearts, that affects the kind of person we become. That's Psalm 115. Those who make them will become like them, and so will all who trust in them. That's the psalm for idolatry, Psalm 115. It's like God comes after us, and He's saying He cares about this issue of idolatry. He wants to grind up the golden calves because of what's happened to us. He's wanting more for us in His mercy and grace. It's loving us enough to call us to a higher place. That's the issue. The Israelites are settling for idolatry and golden calves, and God doesn't want them to settle for that. He calls them up. It isn't about Him being diminished. I like what Louis Giglio said. He wrote this paragraph. He said, God, He's self-sufficient. He's self-contained. God doesn't need anything or anybody. If all of us happen to fall off the face of the earth, hear this, God will still be exactly who He is. If all of us abandon our worship of Him, He'll remain the same. God's greatness doesn't depend on us. 
if not one single person on earth ever chose to respond to him in love, believing him and worshiping him, hear this, God would still be all that he already is, always has been, and always will be. That's the point. God's not being diminished. We are. When we bow down to idolatry, when we give into our golden calves, it's we who are shrinking. It's we who are settling. Because the Bible gives like three metaphors for what happens in our relationship with our idols. We love them, we trust them, and we obey them. That's what we do with our idols. And that's why God goes after this with such severity. He's like, I'm trying to train a people to love and trust and obey me, and they're caught up in this cycle of their golden calves and their idolatry. So God calls them out of it, not for his benefit, but for primarily for theirs. And so I thought what we'd do with the remainder of the time this morning is do a little diagnostic, and I put this in your note sheet, a little grid for how do we identify what are the idols running around in the pasture of our hearts? What are our own little golden calves? I got a whole herd of golden calves that I, I'm trying to deal with. We'll get to that in a minute. But what, maybe another way to look at it is where have the good become the ultimate? Because often the places of idol, they didn't start out as a bad thing. They just progressed into the ultimate thing. When good, when good moves into ultimate, God says, hey, you moved it from a gift to an idol that way. So there's like a four-step grid here I put in your notes. They've been very helpful to me. I offer it to you for kind of identifying these places of idolatry, identifying our own personal golden calves. The first one is that William Temple says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. So the first area to kind of reflect on to get at your idols is, where do your thoughts go when you're not forced to think about anything? Or I put, as I put in your notes, like, what are you, like, where your thoughts effortlessly go when there's nothing else to really occupy them? What are, you, what are you preoccupied with these days? Like, what is your mind drifting to? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? So this first one has to do with kind of examining when you're not pressed to have something on the front burner of your mind, where do your thoughts drift to? There's a little window. Add that secondly, Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's Jesus' way of saying, trace the pattern of your spending. Trace through the trail of money. Where does it lead? There's another little window, kind of tracks that could point to some things. Couple that with the third area, unanswered prayer and frustrated hopes. So in this space, I want you to think about like, how are you and I responding to those situations in our life? When we're praying for something, we're working hard for something, and it just doesn't come to be. Anybody there this morning? Like where you've just been busting your tail, praying your guts out, trying to press forward in something that you're really convinced that God wants, and it's just, it's not happening. And what I want you to look at there is look for what's your kind of your emotional reaction in that space. Is there any place of like explosive anger or deep despair? It could be exposing an idol. And then the fourth element, Tim Keller says it this way, pull your emotions up by the root and you'll often find your idols clinging to them. So look at those places in our lives of kind of the uncontrollable emotions, the ones that never seem to lift. So hang with me here. I wrote some of these things out to try to help us. And I put these in your notes. I think it's worthy of some reflection this week. So ask yourself things like, why am I so scared of that? Why am I so threatened with losing something that I couldn't imagine living without? Ask, why am I so down on myself? Is it because I failed at something I believe is a necessity? 
ask, why am I driving myself into the ground? Why am I overworking, always pushing, never able to shut it off? Do I feel I must have this thing to be fulfilled and significant? Do you see? It's kind of just trying to probe, looking at those emotional responses in our lives, the emotional state, the emotional health, and it, often idols are kind of clinging to the roots of those emotions. So there's kind of a, a four, kind of a four-tiered grid to just examine and say, God, what's going on in the pasture of my heart here? What are there any places that have moved from kind of good to ultimate, become a golden calf? So for me, as I work through this, one, one of the areas for many years I continue to struggle with is, is like church, the church health, like the state of the church. For me, it can become like an idol. Like, it really matters to me. Like, I, I really care about us, like, flourishing as a church, like, helping people and growing disciples and impacting our community and impacting the brokenness of the world. Like, that really matters to me. Those are all good things, but it can move to a place of an ultimate thing. It can just, it can just start taking over. It can become a golden calf. It can become an idol. I have to be very conscious of that. And I look at how my signature sins, so I've got three primary signature sins. You've heard me talk about these before, but I struggle with perfectionism and drivenness and people-pleasing. And can you see how perfectionism and drivenness kind of like lift up the golden calf of like the, church, the health of the church? Like that, that whole mixture there, that gets to be a mess in here. And then another one for me is like, my leadership reputation or my pastoral reputation, like, that can just matter too much to me. Like, I, I want people to think well of me. I want to be well-respected for, for my work. And my signature sin of people-pleasing kind of fuels this one and kind of, it drives it to a place of, why am I, do you see all these three, why am I pushing so hard? Why am I working so hard? Why am I trying to prove myself in all these ways? What is this? I think it's a good thing. It becomes an ultimate thing. It's become an idol. It's become a golden calf. It's begun to shape and drive who I become as a person. And I can keep going. I got a whole pasture of me. I got got a whole herd. I got a whole herd of golden calves in here. And God in His mercy and grace, He wants to come. He's like, Eric, I've got more for you in that. I want to tear those down and grind those up out of my love for you, out of my desire to call you into the place I want you to become in Jesus. And so to bring this together this morning, as you kind of are reflecting now, maybe in your own heart, you're identifying some things as you look at that grid. Say, well, what, what's God do with those? Like, how does he grind them up? What, what's the process of that? And I think Colossians 3, and that's where we'll kind of land things this morning, Colossians 3, 1 to 5, is our window into like uprooting and replacing the idols And I want you to look there with me. It'll be up here on the screen. Here's how Paul said it in Colossians 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So one of the good indicators of like you're working your way through a place of idolatry is to ask this. What are the thoughts that are no longer occurring to you? So you move from this place of when you don't have anything to think about, where do they drift to? And you just feel like, man, this situation, the circumstance, it's just 
overwhelming. It's just all-consuming, my thought life, my emotional life. In a place where Jesus comes and starts setting you free from that idol, here's a good indicator. What are the things that the thoughts that just no longer occur to you anymore? Like, you can't remember the last time that became a front-burner issue. That's a good window. This is what Colossians 3 is getting at, saying, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. And look at this language, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is, what? Idolatry. So here's the window Paul gives us in Colossians 3. So what do we do when we begin to identify these golden calves? What we do is we cultivate a vision for a superior love. That we get a hold of this vision of all that God is for us in Jesus. The glory of the gospel. All that Christ has accomplished as we head towards Passion Week. That we get captivated with who Jesus is and all that he's done. That it's his superior love that begins to loosen the grip of these golden calves and these idols. Because remember, many of them start out as good things. It's not that God wants us to love our families less. Having a family is a wonderful thing. Having spouse and children, a good thing can become an ultimate thing. It's not that we're to love our families less. Hear this. We want to love Christ more, that we cultivate a superior, a greater love, a superior satisfaction in Jesus so that our families, our work, our ministry, our identity, our value, our worth is grounded in who we are in Jesus, not necessarily what He's given us in His gifts. Because when something moves from good to ultimate, it moves from a gift to an idol. And in the space to get him to release the grip on the idols, he comes to us with this vision. Hey, set your heart and minds on all that God is for you in Jesus and the glory and supremacy of his great love. Set your, set your gaze of your heart on that face and watch what happens in here. All of a sudden, the herd running around in here starts getting ground up starts getting cast down, starts getting right-sized out of this magnification of His great love for us. So in 1916, Bill Wilson was on a business trip. <clears throat> Bill Wilson had left the military after serving some time of the war, and, you know, guys in the military, he talked about what you do at the end of a long day in the military is you just have a drink together. And Bill Wilson said that he just got pretty good at having a drink together with his buddies in the army, and when he left the army and went back to his civilian life, he just continued to drink, and his drinking came to the point where it got out of hand. It got to the point where he was considering himself just in a perpetual state of drunkenness. It was affecting his wife, it was affecting his family, his kids, his work, his health. Basically, alcohol had taken over Bill Wilson's life, and so he was battling for sobriety, and he had had about a six-month stint of being sober on this day when he walked through the hotel lobby, and he had lost a business deal earlier that day. He was feeling down. He's walking through the lobby, and Bill Wilson said he heard a sound that triggered something inside of him. It was the sound of ice in a glass in the hotel lobby bar, and it triggered something inside of him, and he said, I need a drink. And he started to turn towards the bar, and, he, and Bill Wilson describes at that moment, he felt like God stepped in 
and turned him from the bar to a telephone. He turned to a telephone through a sequence of phone numbers. He ended up having a conversation with Dr. Bob Smith. Dr. Bob Smith and Bill Wilson ended up being the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he recalls the conversation going this way. He says, no, I don't need another drink. I need another alcoholic. And he talked to Bob Smith. And when I heard that story, I thought, you know, church, it doesn't matter today, like, as we kind of examine the soberness of the pasture of our own interior world and say, what's running around in there? It doesn't matter how big the herd doesn't matter how strongly entrenched they feel. When you feel that pull to serve that idol, it may be this vision that Bill Wilson gives. Say, you know what? I don't need to bow down anymore to that. I don't need to, I don't need sin in that way. What I need is another sinner. I need the community that's provided in the body of Christ. I need to band together with some others and be honest about what's going on and get together with some people who can lead me to the nail-scarred hands of the Savior who said, there's hope for things to be different. I don't need sin. I just need another sinner. I don't need the golden calf. I just need someone else who can lead me to a vision for the superior love that Jesus has to begin to right-size, to begin to tear down, to begin to grind up, to deal with those out-came-the-calf places, to be honest, to take an honest look, to take responsibility, to stop pointing the finger and to look at things the way they are, to assess it. This good has become ultimate, and in Jesus' name, it needs to come down because He has a greater love. He has a greater vision. He has a greater plan, and it's about who you'll become in Him if we'll surrender and relinquish. Because right now, church, as we stop here in Exodus 32 today, it's not looking super great for God's story. Like, golden calf, thousands of funerals, this is, I mean, if you're the surrounding nations and word gets out pretty quickly, you're like, hey, what's going on with the Israelites? Oh, it was a bad week for them, man. They, they just fell on their face and made this calf and God's upset and all these funerals and Moses and Aaron, they look near dead anyway. These two guys are supposed to be their leaders. The surrounding nations are probably looking at it going, but here we are, thousands of years later, the church of Jesus, 190 nations, 2 billion plus people, and that Jesus of Nazareth came from the tribe of Judah from the nation of Israel, the king of the Jews, like God's plan, right? It looks meek, it looks rough, it look, but, but God in His mercy and grace, just like with the Israelites here, He doesn't give on us, up on us today. So maybe you come in today overwhelmed by the pasture of your heart, and Jesus wants you to know that, hey, I didn't give up on them there, and I don't give up on you here. My mercy and my grace is sufficient. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for that beautiful picture that even those times when we read a story like this today and we go, how could they do that? And how many times in my life, you know, fallen on my face, 
And here you are. You just continue to come for us. You continue to spread your love and grace for us. Um, thank you that it isn't the end of the Israelite story and it's not the end of our story, no matter what kind of week we had this week or what kind of month or year it's been. And so I pray in your mercy and grace, just like Paul said in Colossians 3, would you just today, would you just set our hearts and set our minds on the superior love and the superior grace, the vision of all that you are for us in Jesus. And would you cultivate that that gaze of our hearts that would begin to tear down and grind up those places of idolatry. For we want to be a people who love, trust, and obey you. Not the idols of our heart, not the idols of our land. We want to love, trust, and obey you. And by your grace, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.